Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hello, friends. Today, instead of having a guest, I'm going to talk to you directly about something we all need to master, and that's the initial sales presentation or our our sales call. And it's going to be a two-parter. So in this first episode, I'll talk to you about what goes into making the initial sales call. And in the next episode or part two, I'll do a review of an actual sales call that I went on this week um, just to show you what it looks like in practice and to show you what I did right and where I messed up. And in this case, I committed a huge gaffe before I even got in the front door. Um, So I'll talk to you all about that in the next episode. The reason that I thought about doing this is because I like to do a review of these personal history sales calls. Um, They're helpful for me in a couple of ways. So Reviewing these meetings after they happen allows me to figure out what's working, what's not working, and how I can modify the sales conversation the next time that I go to meet a potential new client. Um, This review process has become indispensable, and I actually try to implement it for all of the different aspects of my business. So um, that's everything from having these sales calls to to doing the writing, to doing the interviews, to my bookkeeping. So everything that goes into my business, I try to use this, this looping process of planning and then doing or the act of what I've planned and then reviewing and then modifying. And for the review, I don't just run through it in my head. I actually take notes. So for instance, with the with the review of the sales call, um, I have a folder on my computer that I call inquiries. And every time uh, somebody contacts me who is a potential new client, I start a new document for that person. And I save it with their name and the date that they contacted me. And then after each subsequent contact with that person, whether it's an email or a phone conversation, um, I take notes. And these notes are messy and they're full of details, things that the, the person has told me. Um, it may be why they want to do a life story, how they found me. And that's actually on my list to try to be better about asking how people have found me because that will only help me going forward in my marketing efforts. But it usually entails some random pieces of information about their family or about their life. So the kernels that will develop into stories of their book, if they do decide to work with me on a project. Um, And then I usually include some random comments about the people and about our conversation. Um, You know, often it looks like, oh my gosh, this lady is so sweet, or the man is very quiet, but seems thoughtful. So these are hints that I give myself so that if, if I do end up working with them, it will help me direct the type of interviews that we have. Not sort of the style or the approach that I take with the interviews. And I make sure to do this for every inquiry. Now, there's there's so many that end up never uh, going into a book project or any kind of project at all. Um, but you never know when 
somebody reaches out to you, and then three years later, if they're going to reach out again, that that happens way more often than you would think. So to have that record of that first inquiry, it just it helps me. Then after I sit with the person in person, after I go on the actual sales call, I go back and I take notes. And this is even if they don't hire me. Again, that's going back to if they end up calling me years down the road, I will have a record of what we've already talked about. Okay, so since I just had this meeting, um, an initial sales call, I thought I would share some of the things to make it more concrete for you and give you an overview of my general process for the initial sales consultations. So the very first step, so there's there's three parts. There's the preparation, and then there's the actual sales call, and then there's the review afterwards. And so to go over the preparation, these are the things that fall under the planning stage. Um, and honestly, planning is one of my weak spots. I am not a planner by nature, and um, it's only by sort of imposing this artificial structure that I've been able to make a go of of being a business person because um, planning helps things go right. And I am upping my chances considerably if I force my monkey brain to actually be systematic and try to plan things ahead of time. It's it doesn't feel good for me. I think for some people, they they like that. Um, it does not come natural to me, so I have to force it. But by doing so, I have made myself a better personal historian. Okay, to get on with it, the system that I have created is this, this planning part is the first thing I do is I have to gather up all of the stuff that I'm going to need to bring to my initial sales call. That starts with my nice leather portfolio, and that one is only for show because honestly, people, I take notes every all the time. I take notes in my personal life. I take notes in my business life. I take notes before and after meeting people. I love thinking on paper. You know, I like to have a pen and paper handy pretty much all the time. Um, and what I like the best are these really big, oversized books with really heavy paper. Usually, they're sketchbooks. They're unlined. Um, and I have particular pens that I like, but so these notebooks are not the kind that I would bring into a an initial sales meeting because it l- makes me look like a frankly a thirteen year old girl with you know a thing of markers in my backpack. So I want to present a certain um, I want to present a certain image, and the the leather portfolio is the image that I need to start with. To, to prepare, I, I make sure that my big girl business style portfolio has the things in the pockets that I need. So aside from the notebook, um, I keep it stocked with um, a few things, starting with my business card. Now, inevitably, I forget to give my business card to prospective clients. Uh, it, it happens almost every time. And I don't worry too much about that because honestly, um the business card feels a little bit formal sometimes, especially if you're meeting with somebody who wants to hire you to do their life story. Now, it's a little bit different if they're if you're meeting with them because they have an organizational history or possibly the history of a family business, um, then the business card feels more appropriate. But it seems a little transactional um, for the type of work that we're doing uh, in for general life stories. So I don't I don't worry too much when I forget to give that. The other thing that I keep in my big girl portfolio is my presentation folder. 
Now, this is quite a bit more important to have to give to people. If anybody's interested in what I actually, what comprises this presentation folder, I can do a later post about it or shoot me a, shoot me an email or, or put questions on the comments. But just very briefly, it's about, um, I'd say probably 15 pages and um, it, I have it printed on really nice kind of heavy stock paper and comb bound. Um, and it's got different sections in it. So there's a section describing my process. There are some testimonials. Um, there's some excerpts of uh, actually where I printed off pages of books that I've done. Um, so even if you have all of this kind of thing on your website, you don't want to assume that your potential client has seen it. You know, we're working with, to an extent, uh, we're working with an older population that may or may not be, um, you know, any, any given person may or may not be computer savvy. But even if they have gone onto your website and seen this material, the big advantage of giving them a hard copy is that um, you're giving them something tangible. So when you leave, they're going to have it on their kitchen counter, or they're going to have it on their desk, it's going to be something that they can see without actually having to go and look up your website. And that's going to keep you front of mind, and the, the, the project front of mind, whether, you know, they've decided if they have not decided yet, whether they want to have a book done, they're going to see that it's going to it's going to tug at them a little bit. So something else that I usually tuck into my portfolio is a brochure. Um, I have a trifold brochure. Although I have to say that I'm getting away from this. Um, it, it seems like an outdated uh, type of marketing material. So I'm not printing off new ones. And I don't often give them out anymore. Another thing that you need to make sure to have is a pen. And that right? That seems so obvious. Um, and I'm not even going to tell you how I know how embarrassing it is to come as a professional writer, and then have to borrow somebody's pen. You don't want that to happen to you. The last thing that I make sure to have is um, two blank copies of a professional services agreement. So that's what I use instead of contracts. If you go to your initial sales meeting, and at the end, the person has decided already that they want to hire you, you want to have these forms at the ready. Um, I didn't used to think this way. Back in my when I was when I was newer to the profession, it seemed actually a little rude. You know, it just seemed too businessy and transactional to whip out a piece of paper and start asking for signatures. And, you know, now that I think about that, it just shows how naive I was and how little business sense I started with. When you bring these and somebody is ready to sign on the dotted line right then and there, um, it, it's a it's a great thing for you and for them. It's your uh, It's your handshake that this work is going to get done. So I'm not always great about remembering to do it, and um, and especially remembering to file them away when I get home, which I realized yesterday when I when I went or a couple of days ago, right before I went on this initial sales call, I pulled out my portfolio and I found two signed copies from a client who had recently signed on with me. I had forgotten to actually give her her copy. So another area for improvement for myself. Now. 
The other big thing that I need to remember to bring on these initial sales calls is um, a sampling of the books that I've done for other people. That is a huge thing for people to see, for them to pick up, for them to open, look through, uh, to hold in their hands. It's it's probably the best thing to sell a person on a life story book. Now, what I do not bring, and this I think is very important as well, I do not bring a recorder. This is an initial sales call. Even if they hire me on the spot, it's not the time for the client to start telling me their stories. Um, They will. They inevitably do. Even if they decide not to hire me, they're still going to start telling some stories. But I want to have a clear boundary of when they should be telling me the stories and when I'm not quite ready for that yet. So I actually let them start telling some stories because it helps them, it, it builds excitement, it helps them, um, cre- it creates an emotional connection to the project. But I try to stop them before they get too far into any given anecdote. Um, and a really good way is to just say, hey, I don't have my recorder, so let's save this for, for our, when we begin the interviews. And again, it just helps establish those boundaries for what is, after all, a free consultation. And then after the meeting, if they have hired me or if it looks like they're going to hire me, I usually, I don't do it in their in their driveway because it would look creepy, but usually I, I drive off and then I pull into a parking lot and I write furiously the little bits of stories that they've told me because those are kernels for stories that they will come back to and tell me later. Or if they've forgotten, then I can remind them. It also shows them that I pay attention and that I care about their stories. So that is the getting the stuff together part. And honestly, that's pretty much the easy part. I've got it down to a system. I have my home office. I know where everything is. um, And it doesn't take long to gather everything together. The harder part is to get yourself mentally prepared. And for this, you know, I, I don't go by any kind of script. And I've done these initial sales calls enough where I have a pretty good idea of what I want to say and how I want the meeting to go. But it doesn't hurt to remind myself of some of the important things. And I start by reminding myself to listen. Listen more than speak. The, the reason why people are reaching out to us is because they want to be heard, right? That's why they want to do the Life Story Project in the first place. They have stories to tell that they want to be heard. So we, we do them a service by showing them that we are the person that will hear them and help them let other people hear their stories. So that's why I like to listen um, I will ask questions, but they're, they're questions to draw the person out. So for instance, you know, I might ask why, they, why they've decided to do a project. And I definitely, something that I too often forget to ask, but I need to ask more often is how they've heard about me, because that again will help me in my, my future marketing um, endeavors. But by asking them about the project that they have in mind, then that helps them to see the potential. Um, it helps them get excited about it. And, and again, th- that emotional, build that emotional connection. And this is not manipulative at all, because we are, we are 
honored to be able to help them with this, right? So I feel like by letting them tell me a little bit about the project and have them get excited about the project, I like to take part in that joy. Um, I like to take part in their excitement because how lucky are we that we have this job where we can help someone bring their dream book to life, right? We need to be celebrating right along with them. After that, that initial conversation about what they have in mind, and you know, maybe if they've already started something and realize that a book is too hard for them to write, um, or more often they never have started it, but probably have been thinking about doing a book for quite a while and feel very relieved to have found somebody to help them with that. So after that initial part of the conversation, then I shifted into um, an explanation of how the process works. So I typically ask them if they want me to describe it. And I do this because I want them to have a glimpse of what goes on behind the scenes. And I I usually come out and tell them that 90% of the work happens when I'm at the computer, because I don't want them to have this misunderstanding that the bulk of my time is spent in interviews with them, because they're not going to understand why these projects, you know, these are pretty um, expensive projects. And it's because of all of the time that goes into doing the editing and the writing and then the book production part. Now, I used to belabor this part because I really, really wanted them to understand where their money was going to. But I realized they didn't want to hear that. They didn't really want to hear about what I'm doing when I'm not with them. They want to know that their problem, which is how to record their story, will be solved by hiring me. So now, typically, I just tell them it takes a lot of work to write a book. And then usually I'll give a little thump on one of the sample books that is sitting in front of them. And that says it all. That's what they, that's what they need to know. And that's what they want to know. At this point, if not sooner, the conversation will head towards how much does this cost? And there are honestly so many different ways that you can address this. It actually warrants a whole episode on its own. Very briefly, the biggest determining factor is how you charge for your projects, whether you have a project price or if you charge per hour. And there's lots of different ways of giving this kind of information to your clients. Um, But again, I think that's something that we need to explore in a different podcast because there's just so much to it. Okay, so at this point, then you've talked about, you've let them tell you what they want with their book, um, whether they have a clear idea or not. You've explained to them a little bit about what your process is, how you sit down and do the interviews, and then how much of your work is done when you're away from them at your computer. You've talked about the price, and you're getting to the finish line, and People at this point will either tell you that they are ready to sign on now or they need some time to think about it. And often this is the case if it's an adult child about doing a story about their parents. And sometimes the adult children will say, well, I need to get back to you because I'm going to go and talk to my siblings about sharing the cost. Now, in my experience, this usually doesn't happen. It's very rare that a group of siblings will get together and say, yes, let's, you know, let's all throw some money into the pot and get this for our parents. But that doesn't mean that the deal is off. Because a lot of times, the the 
adult child who has contacted you, the one who is really interested in having their parent's story told, will agree to shoulder the price. Um, So a lot of times they'll hire you and they will just pay for it out of their own pocket. And then, of course, sometimes the person that you're meeting with, whether it's the storyteller or an adult child, um, they'll just tell you that they can't afford it. So addressing this last point, you have the option now, if somebody comes out and says, I really like what you do, and I think you probably would be a great fit for doing it for me, but I, I don't have the money for it. At this point, you have the option of either commiserating with them on the price, you know, just and by commiserating, I mean, just acknowledging, yes, these are expensive projects. There's, there's no reason to try to pretend otherwise. Um, and then you can tell them, well, you know, give me a call if circumstances ever change. By doing that, you are letting them know that your project has a certain worth. And it goes a long way in establishing that in their own mind. Another option is, for me, what I sometimes offer to do is a mini life story with fewer pages and a very, very uh, minimal number of interviews or audio-only projects, which you can also do for much less time, meaning much less expense to the client um, than you can the full life story books. So earlier in my career, I even offered uh, something that I called a lightly edited manuscript. And it brought in some extra money. But the biggest benefit to me was that it gave me practice. So people who were not ready to invest in a full life story book, I still got the interview time with them, right? So I was practicing interviews. And then I got the time to dive deep into the transcripts. Now, I wasn't writing a long form book for them, but I was working with the material. Um, I didn't do that for all that long, though, because it was so much more work than I would have ever thought. And each time when I quoted somebody how much it would be for, you know, say, one or two interviews, I ended up spending so much more time than I ever charged for them. But if you're at the beginning of your career, and you need you need a, some income, and you need lots of practice, then it's a very viable option. Now, on the other hand, you want to look at your workload. So for instance, right now, I have a lot on my plate. And I am not going to be offering any of these smaller projects right now. um, Because, well, there's a couple reasons. One, if I go meet with somebody, and they decide not to do they decide that the price tag is too high, there's always the chance that they'll contact me later. This has happened multiple times, where they will decide, I really want to have this done. This is really a priority for me. So I am going to find the discretionary income to make it happen. So that can happen. B, I want to make sure that I don't clog up my schedule with projects that I or that are not the kinds of projects that I want to be doing. um, Because then I am committing myself and my time. And if the ideal project comes along, I won't be able to say yes to it. There's nothing worse than having to turn away an ideal project because you're committed to doing too many less than ideal ones. But only you can weigh this. Like I've said before, when I was just starting out, my motto was nothing is too small, right? And it helped me, it helped me earn money and it helped me get the practice that I needed to hone my skills. 
So that in general concludes the sales meeting, but that's not the last step in the process for me. After I get back to my office, that's when I do the writing up of the notes and the reviewing. So writing the notes, um, a few things that you definitely want to remember. Obviously, you already have their name and their contact information. I like to duplicate that because my phone contacts often get swallowed somehow. Um, and it's very embarrassing if somebody, you know, if, if you're hired to do a project to have to call them up and say, well, what's your address again? So I make sure at the very top of their document, this initial document that I start for them, I have the, their name, and that's their full name and whether they, um, what they want to be called. So uh, with the older generation, sometimes it's a little presumptuous to start calling them by their first name. The way I usually get around that is just ask them right from the very beginning, oh, what should I call you? So if they want to be called Mr. or Mrs. or Doctor, then they'll tell me. If they have a fuller name, and but they use a nickname, then they'll tell me that too. Um, so I have their name, their contact information. I usually ask for an email, although more contact is probably done by phone than by email. It all depends on the client. Um, make sure that they have that you have their full address. And then it's really important to write down the prices that you've quoted them. So if you're doing an hourly rate, write that down. And if you're doing um, if you gave them an estimate on a project or a, or a firm price on a project, make sure to write write that down. That's really important because even if they say no initially to having a project done, actually it's especially important then because they may call you in a week or a year or three years and you want to be able to refer back and see what was the price that you quoted them. Obviously, if you know a month or two down the road, you'll probably want to honor that, that same hourly price or project price that you gave them. But if it's longer um, in the future, if it's further ahead in the future, then you can look at what you gave them and figure out how much you want to tell them that your prices are at that point in time. So that does it for the overview of my process on initial sales consultations. Um, In part two, I'm going to give you a real world look into the sales meeting that I had just this past week with a potential new client. What I did, what I didn't do, what I wish I had not done. And there is a doozy on that. I made a really big gaffe before I even got through the woman's front door. If you want to share how you plan and conduct your own sales interviews, leave a comment in the show notes at thelifestorycoach.com slash episode seven. That's slash episode written out and then the numeral seven. And if today's show was helpful, the best way you can return the favor is to leave a review on iTunes. I'm Amy Woods Butler, personal historian and your coach for building your own personal history business. Now go out and save someone's story.